every rule, every tradition, every law is made up. So if it doesn't work for you, make your own. Getting Discomfortable with Tradition At some point when I was a teenager, I'm not exactly sure what year it was, maybe I was turning 17 or maybe it was a bit older, 18, 19, I decided that I wanted to have a party with my friends to celebrate my birthday, but without it actually being a birthday party. And if I think about it, I think what I really didn't like was the pressure of a birthday party being all about me, because what if not that many people come? What if it's not very fun? You know, I feel like I don't want to pin my birthday and my self-worth to this one party. So I decided to just keep the things I liked about birthday parties and get rid of the things I didn't. So I called it cake night, because I love cake And the party was at night, so I just invited a bunch of people over for cake night. And I said, don't bring any gifts, let's just have some cake. And I went to Dairy Queen to buy a cake, and they had this giant ice cream cake with all these flowers and butterflies on it. And I was like, what am I going to write on this cake? Because it's not my birthday. I don't want to wish myself a happy birthday. I went through a bit of a depressive, sort of humorously nihilistic phase in my late teens that lasted a good decade or so. If you want to know more about that, I suggest checking out my episode about getting discomfortable with being gay. (laughs) I think that was the cause of it. Anyway, in keeping with that feeling, I asked the teenage staff at Dairy Queen to write the following slogan on the cake in lieu of a traditional happy birthday message. And it was, nothing means anything. Which was quite a nice contrast with all the flowers and frosted butterflies that were on this massive ice cream cake. I unveiled it at the first annual cake night, and it went over very well and was quite humorous. We had burgers, and a fun time was had by all, I think. I felt a lot less pressure because it wasn't really my birthday party. It was just a party that involved cake. And I actually don't even remember this happening. But from what I can reconstruct, at some point, we discovered that the ottoman in my parents' house was actually a storage container, and it opened up and was full of old, like, linens and things. And as a lark, we emptied it out, and we decided to see if I, the birthday boy, could fit inside the ottoman. And so we started squeezing various groupings of people in there, like Jenga, two, sometimes even three at a time. And we would close it and see if we could all fit. It was just a silly one-off thing that you do at a cake night. But then the next year, everyone remembered doing the ottoman thing the year before, And we decided to do it all over again to see which groupings, which pairings of people could fit and in what positions. I should note that we didn't force everyone to go inside. It was an optional thing and it became quite popular. And every cake night since then, at least me and a few other people have squeezed inside the ottoman and closed it and allowed ourselves to be reborn. What started off as a joke party with a joke cake and a joke ottoman getting into became an annual tradition. 
And every year, it was expected that there would be another cake night, and that there would be something equally bizarre written on the cake, and that we would all pile inside the ottoman in different pairings. And as we got older, it became increasingly difficult to fit more than one person in the ottoman at a time. Though we certainly tried. In fact, at one point, me and my three siblings all tried to squeeze in together, and it did not work. A key fact that you should know about this ottoman is that it it is strangely large enough that pretty much anyone can fit inside it, and it will still close. Which was fortunate, so it didn't become like a, a body shaming issue. Every year, the cakes got increasingly gimmicky. One year, it was just a stack of the most delicious cinnamon buns you can find in Vancouver. One year, the cake was full of edible maggots. One year, I meticulously tweezered out the fortunes inside of a bag of fortune cookies and printed my own in exact replicas, but saying extremely macabre things like "You will die in a skiing accident," "You will be molested by a relative." It wasn't politically correct. This was a different time. The jokes just sort of piled up each year, and it became an event that. I really looked forward to, and I think other people looked forward to as well. It became something bigger than just a joke non-birthday party. It became sort of a community event amongst my friends and my family, and our neighbors, and it took on a life of its own. And eventually, it became cake day because it was like a weekend day party, and children started coming. And at this point, it's pretty much just a party for all my nieces and nephews to eat a bunch of sugar. But it's been so much more meaningful and satisfying, ironically, than if I had have just been calling it my birthday all along. And it's a fun talking point. Every year, there's somebody who's never been to a cake night before, and they don't even realize that it is my birthday, and they're really confused about this whole Ottoman thing. And it's just it's something fun about taking part in something unusual, where you either are an insider who understands what the joke is all about, or you're an outsider who's experiencing something totally bizarre but kind of delightful for the first time. It became such a mainstay that when my parents moved houses, they actually kept the ottoman and had it recovered to match their new house. And I think we've had that ottoman for I don't know at least two decades now, just because it serves a very functional role during cake night. Otherwise, it probably would have been gotten rid of ages ago. By creating a new tradition. And allowing it to sort of grow organically, it's become really meaningful somehow. It's become a great way to connect and bond with the people who you have been friends with and with your family, the people that have been in your life for a really long time. You all just get it and appreciate it, and it's a great way to initiate new people into that group and into your life, like new partners coming to cake night for the first time. I think come away with a really, you know, that charming sense of community that you get when when you go to a new country and you discover what their crazy Christmas traditions are and you get to take part in that. There's something just really fun and nostalgic and meaningful about it, and it's convinced me 
that creating your own traditions is a really powerful way to create community, to create connection, and to appreciate the unique group of people in your life. And I actually want to do more of it. I want to cultivate traditions. I want to steal traditions from other cultures. And I want to make my own traditions and canonize them in my own life. Another one of my favorite traditions is that about a decade ago, one of my friends discovered that in Scandinavia, they have a tradition where this demon named Krampus comes to town in early December expressly to frighten children into behaving by putting bad kids in a burlap sack and whipping them with birch branches. And Krampus is a terrifying-looking creature. This was around the time that the internet basically took this Scandinavian tradition and blew it up and turned it into a viral sensation, and now there's been movies about Krampus and whatnot. But the way it manifested in my life is that somebody had the bright idea of having a Krampus-themed Christmas party. And we decided that it should be a white elephant gift exchange because there's something kind of mean-spirited about a white elephant gift exchange in general. And it seemed to fit with the creepy, demonic being that is Krampus. That year, we all got together and everybody brought one gift. I think the maximum amount of money you were allowed to spend was like $20. And the white elephant gift exchange works such that names are drawn out of a hat And the first person opens whichever gift they want. And the next name that's drawn out of the hat can either steal that gift or open a new gift. If they steal the gift from someone, that person then gets to open their own gift or steal another gift from someone else. So it kind of goes around in a circuitous gift-stealing or opening circle until somebody elects to open the very last gift. However... What can sometimes happen is that whoever opens the first gift might open something so terrible that nobody steals it. So they're basically out of the game for the rest of the night. And this is exactly what happened on our very first Krampusnacht. It just so happened that one of our friends brought a friend of hers, not even somebody that she knew very well, and somebody that none of the rest of us knew at all. She was quite cute. That's important later in the story. Anyway, she got selected first, and she opened a terrible joke gift that nobody wanted. So she basically had to sit out the rest of the game. Perhaps the hottest ticket item at the game was a DVD of the Bill Murray Christmas classic, Scrooged, which is actually kind of an obnoxious movie. But I had been joking in the email thread leading up to Krampusnacht that I really wanted to rewatch it and see how it stood up. So one of my friends bought it as their gift, and it was very clever because we had all been talking about it, and we all wanted to see it. So a lot of people were stealing it. And I actually ended the game getting... Scrooged, which made sense because I was the one who had brought it up in the first place. But then, at the very end of the game, this guest who nobody knew, she said that there had to be a change in the rules, that it was only fair that because no one had taken her gift, she should be able to steal one last time. 
Apparently, this is a rule that sometimes people use when they play the white elephant gift exchange. It is not, however, a rule that we had agreed upon at all in advance. But because this girl was kind of cute, and some of the guys had been flirting with her, they all sort of went along with it. And I was like, "What?" And of course, the one gift she decided to steal with impunity was my copy of Scrooged. I was surprised because it was. Pretty clear, despite the fact that this gift kept getting stolen from me, that it had been bought specifically for me. So when this stranger, who I was unlikely to see ever again, took it from me, I thought that that was kind of, well, a little bit mean spirited. But the straw that really broke the camel's back was when we reverse engineered the gifts to figure out who had brought what. You know, it's all anonymous. But one person had brought the absolute worst gift, which was a four-dollar carton of tomato soup, <laughs> and we were able to determine behind the scenes that the only person whose gift wasn't accounted for was this new girl that nobody knew who had stolen Scrooge from me. She was the one who brought the four-dollar can of soup. And I was like, "This is ridiculous." She brings a can of tomato soup, and then she steals Scrooged from me. So, with a devious Krampus-inspired spirit, I got out a DVD that I happened to have on me. This is a DVD that I carried with me at all times. It was a short film I made called Her Suit. The film is all about me meeting a future version of myself and not liking what I see. I'll leave a link so you can watch her suit if you want on discomfortable.net. But the DVD itself was a photo of my hairy stomach, and while this girl was flirting with a friend of mine. I snuck the copy of Scrooge out from under her chair, and I used an exacto knife to cut the wrapping open and very carefully pull the case out, open it, take the Scrooge DVD out, and replace it with the DVD of my hairy stomach containing the short film that I created. And I closed it, and I put it back in the cellophane, and I carefully taped it up, and I snuck it back under her seat. She eventually left. And ended up going on a date with one of my friends a few weeks later, and she never ever mentioned the DVD switch on her date. I mean, in my mind, that probably means that she never even attempted to watch Scrooged, because if she had of, she would have clearly seen that it contained a DVD of me, and I assume she would have mentioned to my friend who she went on a date with, or our other friend who brought her to the party, that she had been hoodwinked. But she never did. And in the days that passed after that party, we decided that it was as if we had been visited by the spirit of Krampus himself in the guise of this young woman. She had brought a mischievous Krampusy nature to the party. She had taken the DVD that I felt was rightfully mine, and I, as a Krampusian payback, had given her her just desserts. So every Christmas after that, it became a tradition to have a Krampus-themed Christmas party, and often someone would bring a traditional four-dollar carton of tomato soup to be one of the worst gifts of the game. And in 
honor of our very first visit from the spirit of Krampus in the guise of this woman who never returned, I might add, and did not continue dating my friend either, we would have a vote at the end of every Krampus night. After there had been all this gift stealing and shenanigans, everyone would do a blind vote on who they thought had represented the curmudgeonly spirit of Krampus best. Though it's a little bit mean-spirited, I think everyone understands that we mean well, and everyone gets voted Krampus one year or another, though there have been some notorious occasions where someone has brought a new girlfriend to Krampus night, and they have gotten voted Krampus, and it's up to the discretion of the person counting the votes to actually say the true name or not. And there have been, I think, one or maybe two occasions where I decided as the counter not to reveal who had actually been voted Krampus because I felt like they didn't fully appreciate our group's kind of cutting sense of humor. So I chose a safer target to be Krampus that year. Once again, Krampus Knocked is one of these spontaneous, hilarious, kind of epic stories from our life that was so fun that we just had to keep doing it. And every year it gets more and more ridiculous and new rules get added to the game and new people come and the tradition kind of morphs and grows. But it has this kind of meaning that is bigger than just a random Christmas party. It it has a, a sense of connection, nostalgia, community that I think brings us all together and is one of the most exciting things that I look forward to in the Christmas season. When I think about how much I love these traditions, I realize that you don't have to just wait for them to happen organically. You can actually create them yourself. As I've been traveling the world, I've encountered all kinds of fascinating traditions in other cultures, and I've just been like, I'm going to steal that. And on the year of travel, perhaps my favorite story about new traditions happened on Canadian Thanksgiving. I was traveling with 50 different remote workers during remote year, and about a handful of us, half a dozen, were Canadian. And when the Americans found out that Canadian Thanksgiving was coming up, they were like, what is Canadian Thanksgiving? And we were like, oh, it's amazing. It's, it's so fun. You, you've never, you don't know Canadian Thanksgiving? It's so unique. And one of us Canadians started talking about planning a Canadian Thanksgiving dinner for the entire group. And in our private chat somebody suggested that we should trick everyone and make up a bunch of fake traditions. And I immediately was like, I am so into this. I started doing a bunch of research into what actual Canadian traditions there are. And we sort of took some Canadian legends and basically warped and bent them to our purposes. And this is what we came up with. First of all, we told everyone that on Canadian Thanksgiving, it is traditional to start the evening by singing the Canadian national anthem while holding your left earlobe. All of the Canadians in the group did an incredible job of yes-anding each other. In improv, there's this technique called yes-and, where someone suggests something and you immediately agree as if that has always been true and you add something else. 
So I would say something like, of course, you know, you hold your ear. And someone would be like, yes, uh, because the ears were known to get frostbite. And someone else would be like, yeah, and in Quebec, we actually hold the other ear because of this reason. And it was just like a, a hilarious constant, enthusiastic agreement with each other's cockamamie traditions and then adding something else on. And the hilarious thing was that people believed it. So we got all of the, you know, two dozen guests at our Canadian Thanksgiving party, which was being held in Argentina, I might add, to hold their ears and sing the Canadian national anthem along with us. And then before dinner, Instead of saying grace, we said that at Thanksgiving, Canadians would all go around giving an apology, as Canadians are known to do. So we had everyone in the group go around and give a very sincere apology for something. And my apology that night was, without any explanation, I'm sorry for lying. Which, I wasn't really sorry, but I had been lying a lot. And then, as everyone collected their plates... There were certain plates that had sticky notes on the bottom, and there were three or four characters who we said were classic Canadian characters, and that at every Canadian Thanksgiving, someone got that character and had to enact them. One of the characters was called Bonhomme de Neige, which is a famous anthropomorphic snowman from Quebec. That's true. But we told them that Bonhomme de Neige's role at a classic Canadian Thanksgiving is to eat all of the leftovers. And it just so happened that one of the guys on our trip who had one of the biggest appetites was accidentally selected as Bonhomme de Neige. So it was perfect. Another plate that was randomly selected was known as the Queen of Canada. And she was basically the ruler of the entire party. She could demand that you do anything and you either had to do it or you could take a penalty by doing what we called a toe shot. The toe shot was inspired by a real Canadian legend in the Yukon in which there is apparently an ancient bottle of whiskey that contains a severed human toe. So we claimed that in honor of this famous Canadian severed toe, at Canadian Thanksgiving, it was traditional to do toe shots, which meant that you held a small glass in your toes and tried to do a shot into your mouth using your foot. We demonstrated this, which we had never practiced, and it was actually hilarious. So if anyone didn't want to do what the Queen of Canada demanded that they do during Thanksgiving, they could just do a toe shot instead. So throughout the night, people were doing these hilarious toe shots, drinking from their own foot, spilling alcohol all over their faces. We even discovered, which we also claimed was something that just happened all the time, that you could do a double toe shot. That's where I use my foot to pour a shot into someone else's mouth, while simultaneously they use their foot to pour a shot into my mouth. It was truly hysterical. Meanwhile, everyone who couldn't finish their dinner kept giving the food to my friend Justin, who was Bonhomme de Neige, and he was dutifully eating all of the leftovers until the Queen of Canada herself made the decision to give Justin a break by decreeing that he no longer had to eat all of the leftovers. It just was like one of the most fun nights I had of the entire year. It was just so silly. And a lot of people left the party saying, man, Canadians are so much cooler than I thought. A few people in the group 
started to suspect that this wasn't true. But it seemed like most people believed it, to the point where we even had staff from Remote Year at the party who work in admissions. And one of them said that the next day she was talking to some Canadians who were thinking of joining Remote Year. And she told them that she had just done Canadian Thanksgiving and how much she loved all of our amazing and crazy traditions. And she was like, all of the Canadians reacted like in really strange ways, but they didn't actually contradict anything that I said. So when we finally revealed that it was all a lie, which was actually like a month later, some people were genuinely offended. But it was such a fun night that I think everyone forgave us. And to be honest, I hope to incorporate those traditions into every Canadian Thanksgiving that I am a part of from now on. It was way more fun than a traditional Thanksgiving. And it goes to show that You can create your own traditions. You can conspicuously invent them. And if they connect, if they're really fun, if it makes for a great story, if it's a notorious evening that you remember, then they really stick. They become real traditions. So it's almost a process of of imagination, of trying new things, of stealing and borrowing traditions from other cultures and making them your own, it's still organic in the sense that you have to actually live it and try it. And if it makes for a great evening, then it's going to naturally demand that it come back. And if it doesn't, then that's okay. You know, you can explore different traditions and let them go. But my point is that there's something really meaningful and powerful about codifying these epic, memorable, hilarious events into a recurring thing. It reminds you of the good times. It reminds you of the things that bond you and your friends and your family and your community and your neighbors. It's something to look forward to as well. It's something that gives you that sense of coziness or togetherness that helps to disrupt the monotony of normal life. Meanwhile, there are other traditions that we all just kind of blindly accept, like Christmas, that sometimes aren't even that fun. Society tells us, oh, you have to do this on Christmas, and you have to do this on Thanksgiving. And some of those things are great, and they have that nostalgic, connective community event that that I love. But sometimes they're a hassle, and and like Christmas is a great example. You look at the consumerism involved in Christmas, and you wonder at a certain point, are any of us really enjoying this? Are we are we really getting out of it that kind of connection and meaning that we're supposed to be getting? So I would encourage all of us to look at the traditions that we find kind of thrust upon us and consciously decide Is this what I want? Is this achieving what it should be achieving? And if not, what can we do to improve it? What what can we do to say, you know what? I'm going to make Christmas my own. I'm going to keep the things that I love about it. And I'm going to get rid of all the shit that I don't love, like buying a million presents. You know, I was talking to one friend whose family has a Christmas tradition in which they can only give each other one used book. So everybody gets and gives a bunch of fascinating used books, and that becomes their reading list for the the remainder of the year. It's quite an incredible form of a book 
book club meets Christmas tradition, and it has more meaning than if they were buying each other Fitbits. Which, <laughs> to be honest, I did buy my brother a Fitbit for Christmas this year, but but apparently he he wanted it. I've created a lot of traditions in my life, but I haven't really taken my own advice about. Changing the traditions I don't like and making them into traditions that I do want. So that's sort of like a goal going forward for me: is to take traditions in my family and improve upon them. Why not? Who says you can't make Christmas better? And the sheer audacity and novelty of making it better will, in itself, become one of those epic stories that truly deserves to become a tradition. The other tradition-building technique that I recommend is that any time you have an incredible experience with your friends or your family or your neighborhood or your community, any time you have one of those hilarious stories or one of those amazing nights, you know, just like one of those epic lifelong memories, you should take that experience and attempt to turn it into a tradition. And I think you'll find that it's quite possible, and people are quite willing because it's like honoring a great experience. You don't want to become Bill Murray in the film Groundhog Day. You know, Groundhog Day has this great storyline where he repeats the same day, Groundhog Day, over and over and over again. And every now and then, he accidentally has a great day, and he attempts to recreate that great day over and over again. But by trying to consciously create it, he screws it up, and it becomes forced and awkward. I could see that happening if you're trying to take a great, spontaneous, accidental night and turn it into a tradition. That's why I think you have to look at it more as. Taking something great that worked once and then celebrating the memory of it by turning it into a ritual, a a celebration, a reenactment, almost a performance. You know, the first time we got into the ottoman, it was spontaneous and hilarious, and we didn't know what we were doing. The second time, it was more like we were honoring that spontaneity by turning it into a ritual in which we got into the ottoman, but with a kind of different mindset, a kind of Appreciative, nostalgic, honoring our own ridiculousness, kind of ceremony. So I encourage you to look back over some of the most hilarious nights that you've had with your friends, or some of the most notorious trips that you've done with your family, like the time my family went and spent a week on a houseboat with our dog. Those kinds of classic stories. Try to recreate them in a ritualistic, celebratory, self-aware way, and you might discover that it makes for a really powerful tradition that you look forward to, that helps you bond with old friends, that helps create that sense of comfort and community that we all crave as social animals. I think tradition can be very powerful in a positive way, but I think traditions can also be very stifling when we get trapped in a kind of dated mindset that holds us back. I'm thinking, of course, of the classic musical Fiddler on the Roof, in which the father of a large family alienates all of his children by demanding that they adhere to the dated conservative traditions of their culture. Tradition 
just for tradition's sake, I don't think is always healthy. We can get stuck in certain patterns that don't make sense anymore, that aren't making us happy, that aren't bringing us together, just because we think that they have some greater meaning. I think the real meaning of tradition is to connect us. The only sacred part of tradition is the ritualistic reminder of certain important truths. But if the tradition itself starts to obscure those truths, say through rampant consumerism at Christmas, that's not what Christmas was really about. So it's almost evolved to the point where it has completely eclipsed all the values that probably created Christmas in the first place. Not only the Christian values, but the pagan values and celebrations on which Christianity built Christmas. None of that is really being honored by Christmas anymore. So I think it would make way more sense to change Christmas and make it something that connects again with meaning for you and your family. A tradition is is really only valuable, I think, when it it's alive, when it's living, when it still connects you with a real kind of memory, a real kind of meaning, a real kind of nostalgia, a, a, a real kind of connection and community feeling. And if, it, if it's dead, if it's become a kind of hollow masquerade that you do just because you think you have to, I don't think that's a useful tradition anymore. I think that's a tradition that you have to let die or you have to recreate it and give it new life. My friends often tease me because my family is notorious for celebrating Christmas on a different day. It's just that I have so many siblings and there are so many in-laws with their own parents and families that it's extremely difficult to get us all together on December 25th. It just makes a lot more sense for us to celebrate Christmas on the 27th because that way there are no more demands for our time and we can really have some quality time together. Pretty much everyone seems to agree that Jesus wasn't actually born on December 25th. And I don't believe that Jesus was necessarily the son of God. Like, that just doesn't mean anything to me. It doesn't have value for me anymore. So to demand that Christmas be associated with something that doesn't mean anything to me is just pointless. I would rather take Christmas and make it more about the things that bring my family together, the things that bring me and my friends together, and the things that bring us and a larger sense of community together, and the things that bring us a sense of giving, a sense of helping, and demanding that we open a bunch of presents and eat turkey on a specific day isn't really necessary to achieve those things. So go ahead, create your own traditions, break the rules of the traditions that you already have, shake it up, make a joke tradition out of Thanksgiving, do whatever you want and see what sticks, keep the things that are meaningful and get rid of the things that aren't. Everything is made up anyway. I'm reminded of that great Steve Jobs quote. I mean, I don't want to lionize Steve Jobs. He sounded like a bit of a dick, to be honest, but I really did agree with him when he said that everything in the world was created by people who are no smarter than us. And that means that we can create our own world. That's quite a liberal paraphrase, but it's true. 
everything, every rule, every tradition, every law is made up. So if it doesn't work for you, make your own.